Thank you. Peace be with you. I uh, just want to, before I jump into the sermon, I just want to express that the Oaks has been a home for our family, and we have desperately um, looked for a home, and this, is, this church has, has been that for us. So thank you um, for making this place so special to us. We're going to be in Matthew 24 today. Um, it's quite a long text. We're going to be in verses 1 through 35. So first sermon here, 35 verses and 24. That's humbling. Um, you can stay seated for the reading, but before I read, I want to give us a context of how we've gotten here. In Matthew 21, Jesus triumphantly walks into Jerusalem, and we celebrate this on Palm Sunday. And in that entrance, he directly goes to the, through the eastern gate directly to the temple. And this is very prophetic, and Matthew is highlighting uh, something that happened in Ezekiel where the Spirit of God entered into the temple through the eastern gate. Then Jesus, while he's there, he cleanses the temple, and then in chapter 22, he begins teaching there about the kingdom of God and teaches in parables. And then in 23, which we have heard the last two weeks, he curses the Pharisees in his last public address, and then he weeps over Jerusalem. Then, now where we are at the beginning of 24, Matthew, in his brilliance, is showing the prophetic exiting of the temple, and he ends up on the Mount of Olives. Hence, this is why historically this has been called the Olivet Discourse, because it occurs in the Mount of Olives. And just like the Spirit of God left the temple in Ezekiel and goes through the Mount of Olives, Jesus leads his disciples and he sits with them at the Mount of Olives. And so we're going to jump into our text. It is a long text, so bear with me. Follow along. It's, it's going to be on the screen as well. We're going to read verses 1 through 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, has a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetops not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be 
in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, it never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets all arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, even possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn, it, this, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, you are wonderful and your plans for this world are glorious. We thank you for Jesus and the word that he has given to us, that it does not pass away no matter what is happening in the heavens and the earth. Help us today hear the calling of Christ in this text, and may the Holy Spirit give us a burning passion to live in a manner of his disciples. Bless all of us here and all of us at home. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In June of 1947, Hyman Goldsmith asked artist Martel Langsdorff to design a cover for a magazine called The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Martel was married to a man named Alexander Langsdorff, who worked on the Manhattan Project while at the University of Chicago. The Manhattan Project was the United States' first endeavor into the creation of nuclear weapons. And because of her proximity to her husband, she would overhear lots of discussions about the impacts of nuclear weapons and how it would impact all of humanity and the globe. And so in her design for this cover, she wanted to reflect the urgency and the anxiousness that she was feeling internally in her cover. What she rendered is today known as the Doomsday Clock. You'll see it on the screen. The Doomsday Clock was, uh, was manned by one person until 1973, and now is overseen by experts who move the hands, who are experts in climate, they're climate specialists, experts in various sciences, and even 13 Nobel laureates are currently on this committee. Its design is a metaphor that warns the public about how we are destroying the world using dangerous technologies of our own making. And it is a metaphor that reminds us of the perils that we must address in order 
to survive on the planet. The clock currently sits at 100 seconds to midnight, in which midnight represents the destruction of the planet. This is just one example of many of our obsession with the apocalypse, of the end of the world, the end times. We see it in movies. We see it in art. We see, hear it in music. Just think of R.E.M., but no fans here. <laughs> but this obsession is not something that is just modern. It has been around for a very, very long time. The Smithsonian's Magazine website provides some notable predictions for the end of the world. The first one I want to highlight was from an Assyrian clay tablet that is dating back to 2800 BC, and it bears this inscription translated into English. Our earth is degenerate in these later days. There are signs that the world is speedingly coming to an end. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey their parents. Hear that. Every man wants to write a book, and the end of the world is evidently approaching. Everyone wants to write a book. We have influencers in 2800 BC. This is pre-Instagram. Can't make this up. In 1910, the passing of Halley's Comet led to mass hysteria globally because of its distance and proximity to the Earth. One French astronomer said that if its gases would impregnate the atmosphere, it would possibly snuff out all life on this planet. The response of the anxious public was to buy lots and lots of gas masks, purchase comet pills, I don't know what those are, they probably help with the gas, gas X maybe, I don't know, and they participated in apocalyptic comet parties. In more recent memory, some of you in this room would remember, billions of dollars was spent worldwide in 1999 to fix the Y2K bug. And there was speculation, for those who lived through it, that it would send the whole world into a blackout. And it would impact all of the communications in the world, banking and global markets, sending the earth into craziness. And people were terrified. I just remember this as a child. They were terrified. My parents were terrified. It is undeniable that when systems tumble and powers change or culture evolves, there's an increasing anxiousness in humanity concerning the end of the world. All the changes that are happening, even in culture and society, it means that, hey, our destruction must be coming soon. It's all coming down. And in our text, the disciples are experiencing something similar. If you remember, they look at these buildings of the temple, they point to them and show Jesus, and Jesus looks at them, just remember where these guys came from. The, three years before this, they were fishermen, tax collectors, and even revolutionaries. And Jesus looks at the temple with them and says, hey, you see those buildings? It's all coming down. All of it. And it's like he's using this language. He's like, yeah, the buildings are going to come down, but not just the buildings. All of it's coming down. It's all going to be destroyed. And you have to understand that the temple was the epicenter of Jewish faith and culture. Not just faith, but culture. Everything centered around the temple. It was the, their obedience to the law was tied to the temple. 
their culture, everything, their, the festivals and the feasts that they would have centered around the temple. The temple itself took 46 years to build and its entirety was filled with artifacts of great value and it had a very, very large treasury, kind of like a bank. And while on the Mount of Olives, the disciples come to Jesus privately and ask him two questions. And this is in private. They're alone here. The first question is, when will these things be? When's it going to happen, Jesus? When's the temple coming down? And the second question they ask, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? It's almost like the foretelling of the impending destruction of the temple created an anxiousness in the disciples. And they're like, okay, so that's going to happen? That's coming down, you're telling us? All right, then the end must be near. It's all coming down then. If that, you're going to set up your kingdom. You're going to destroy the world. It's going to be completely different. And that's kind of makes sense because we are doing the same thing. So Jesus begins to tell them about what's going to happen. He just tells them what, the, what their immediate future is going to be like. He says in verse 4, people are going to be led astray from the gospel. Verse 5, there will be many people claiming to be prophets or even the Messiah himself. Verse 6, there's going to be rumors of war. Verse 7, nations are going to rise up against each other. And this will only be the beginning of the pains that are coming. And he tells, tells them that they're, in verse 9, that they're going to be delivered over to tribulation and they're going to be killed. Verse 11, false prophets will come defaming the laws of God and that the love of many will grow cold. All of these events that Jesus foretells to the disciples have always been understood by many theologians as prophetic words about the end of the world, about the end times, the apocalypse. This is due to the nature of the language that Jesus uses and the reality that there are a lot of parallels between what's happening with the disciples at that time period and what we experience today. And Jesus is trying to tell them about what's going to be happening, but it seems like it's all coming down. But not to mention, the second question is there as well. The disciples asked Jesus, hey, the end of the age is coming, when is it? So it's natural that these theologians would come to this conclusion. But upon further study of biblical languages and history, all the events that Jesus is talking about in this discourse are actually respond, or in response to the disciples' questions are actually about the temple, about the first question. So Matthew seems to compile these verses, 3 through 35, has the first response to the first question. And then he begins to respond to the second question in verse 36, which Pastor Barry is going to cover next week. Praise God, I don't have to do that today. The key to understanding these verses and their historical fulfillment is actually in verse 34. It says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The question that we must ask or must understand is, how long is a generation? Is it figurative? Is it 20 years? 
30 years? 40? Although Jesus' words are often taken as figurative here, by 70 AD, Jesus' words would be fulfilled. The temple would be destroyed, the one that he pointed out. And this would happen during an event called the Siege of Jerusalem. The Siege of Jerusalem would stem from the revolts against Rome by Jewish nationalists led by a Roman commander named Vespian. And he led those forces into Palestine. This was kind of a result of, in year 66 AD, a Roman governor named Florus would actually go into the temple, into the treasury, and steal money from the temple. And this would lead to a rise of Jewish leaders and the people against the empire. The war would eventually be taken up by Vespian's son Titus, because Vespian would become the emperor of Rome after a civil war. Eventually, Roman troops would surround the city and cut off food supplies, which led to starvation and the people resorting to cannibalism. And in 70 AD, Titus would lead the troops to demolish the city and kill millions of inhabitants who could not escape. The Jewish historian Josephus gave this firsthand account. He says this, Now the number of those that were carried captive during the whole, world, whole, whole war was collected to be 97,000, as was the number of those who perished during the whole siege, 1,100,000. In other words, 1.1 million people. The greater part of whom would indeed be the same nation with the citizens of Jerusalem, but not belonging to the city itself. For they had come up from the country to the Feast of Unleavened Bread and were on sudden shut up by, the, by an army, which at the very first occasioned so great a traitness among them that there came a pestilential destruction upon them, and soon afterwards such a famine as destroyed them more suddenly." Understanding the circumstances that Jesus was talking about and understanding the siege of Jerusalem, it puts into light the words of Jesus beginning in verses 15 through 31. Jesus alludes to this destruction of the temple and he even points back to the prophecy in Daniel when the temple was defiled at a different point in history. But what he's referring to there is most likely the Roman forces would enter into the temple and begin making sacrifices to their gods in the temple. Verse 18 shows that it would be so bad and devastating in Jerusalem that people won't even be able to go get clothes and things from their house. They just need to get out. Verses 19 through 21, women who are nursing or are pregnant, they're going to have a hard time getting out of the city and fleeing to the mountains. Because it happened during a Sabbath, if you picked up on Josephus's quote. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there were so many people there that it was, they couldn't even get out of the city. It was so crowded. Interesting enough that the word vulture in verse 28 in the original biblical languages is actually translated eagle. And the eagle was the symbol of the Roman centurions. They would hold it up on, on like, a, like, a, like a flag and they would hold it up as they would march in. It gives the imagery that the, the eagle, the centurions would be circling the dead as they entered the city. 
in verses 29 through 31, the ver- these verses express a cosmic imagery of it. It's very similar to the Old Testament destruction and judgment that would come upon nations, found in Isaiah 13 during the fall of Babylon to the Persians. Also, one, one like this in Amos 8, and much like the book of Revelation, they use cosmic imagery, exaggerated language of the sun darkening and people crying out for the return of the Messiah. And you may be thinking right now, man, this is so dark. It is. This is the world that the disciples are entering into. But although Jesus is telling them about what is coming, there is a lot of hope in this passage. And you, you may have picked up on some of that as you were reading. But Jesus seems to know that the disciples are anxious and he encourages them. He tells them some things about the events that are going to be happening. In verse 22, he tells them that this tribulation will be cut short. This is not the end, even though you're going to be thinking it is. It's going to, you think it's going to keep going, and you think it, everything's going to fall apart and be destroyed. It's actually not. It's going to be cut short. And in verse 31, he tells them that he's going to be sending out his messengers, and he uses the word angels, but messengers into the entire world to proclaim the gospel because of these events. So good is coming. But in my opinion, the most fascinating part of this entire discourse with Jesus comes at the very beginning of the conversation. This is where Jesus gives the disciples three key instructions on how to get through this times, what they're supposed to be doing, and how to navigate it. The first one is found in verse 4. It says, see that, you are, that no one leads you astray. Or another way of saying that is see that, you, that we are not buying into the lies around us. These lies from false prophets and teachers are going to lead many astray, and these lies are going to form you. Don't let them. The second is found in verse 6. See that you are not alarmed. Another way of saying that is see that you are not anxious about the circumstances of the world. There's no doubt that the world around you is falling apart. And if you buy into the lies around you and what is happening, you're going to be formed in anxiety and it's going to get worse as circumstances get worse. And the third is found in verse 14. All of this is for good for the nations. Know that everything's happening so that the nations would be glad in hearing the gospel. So what is Jesus doing here? He's doing something very intentional. Ultimately, I think Jesus is calling for the formation of trust in the disciples. He wants them to trust him. Jesus is calling them to trust in his plans for the nations. He's telling them, like tenderness of the leaves on a fig tree, and that even the cosmos and the earth are seemingly destroyed. You're going to know all these things are happening. Everything's going to fall apart seemingly, but my words will not. I will not. And the disciples could bank on Jesus' words with complete trust. Now, 
with an understanding of all the catastrophic events that are happening, that are going to happen in Matthew 24, I want to invite us to reflect on the last 12 months. Last 12 months. Really think about it. What has the last year been like? If you remember where you were a year ago, I was freaking out. I know my friends were. Everything's shutting down. I didn't know if I was going to get the medical supplies I needed. Pandemic, political unrest, announcements of social injustice, cancel cultures, schools shutting down completely, individual isolation, and the threat of losing loved ones. That's our last 12 months. Would you say that the world has been marked by an extreme, radical, and trusting God during the last 12 months? Better said, have you and I been marked by an extreme trust in God during the last 12 months? I think what we see in our world today is that we are being formed and influenced by lies in every direction. Social media, influencers, news, etc. They're pulling us in every direction and they are having an impact. What we're filling ourselves with, they're forming us, whether we know it or not. We are more anxious than almost any other time in human history. As we get more information, we are actually becoming more frantic and more anxious We think the information will relieve our anxiety. Actually, it's magnifying it. And we are characterizing our circumstances now as the end of the world and that nothing good can come. And this isn't just in society. This is actually prevalent in the church. Whether churches are shutting down, sometimes not even of their own fault, but many churches are shutting down. They're shutting down ministries. Or even worse, many churches are just, they're hunkering down. They're saying, you know what? We're only going to focus on ourselves. We're going to focus on our people. We're redeemed. We're saved by grace. We're going to be here. And everybody else, the whole world can just go to hell. Pardon my language. It's already there. It's already condemned. I'm just going to let it go. We are being formed into a people who lack trust in God And everyone knows that trust is the foundation of any relationship. And our lack of trust leads to our lack of presence with God and the formation that can only come from God's presence. So our calling today is to turn away from what is forming us. It's to turn away from what is forming a lack of trust in God in us. Or we could simply say it this way. We need to repent. We need to repent of our lack of trusting God. We need to let the truth of the gospel be the loudest voice in our lives and not allow the lies of the world to form us. This is where hearing the word, praying in our quiet times are not acts or duties to earn God's affections, but rather they are acts of formation 
that are molding our trust in God as we are present with him, presence with God. When we read, when we pray, they're not just things that we check off the box. They are things that are forming us so we don't buy into the lies around us. We need to repent of our anxiousness and worry about the circumstances in the world by understanding that God is with us. He is near us, and we are now the temple in which God dwells. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We can stop living out of fear and disappointment because we know that God is in control and that he is ultimately doing good, even when we can't see it. That's where I'm guilty of. I don't see any good that's coming. And I become anxious and worried. And I forget that God is with me. And then we need to repent of our lack of care for this world. And we need to be engaged as messengers of the gospel. John 3, 17 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The world was already condemned. It was cursed since Genesis 3. It's been, it's going, it, it's been away from God. Sin has infiltrated every aspect of humanity in this world. And God sent his Son. The Father sent the Son himself to redeem it. Not to run away from it, not to curse it more, but to redeem it. And in the same way, Jesus is sending us. He's sending us to our neighbors. He's sending us to our friends, to high school students, and our community to show mercy, grace, and invite them into the presence of God. The same calling to the disciples on the Mount of Olives is the same calling that Christ is giving us today. See that you are not buying into the lies around us. The second, see that we are not anxious about the circumstances of the world. And third, know that everything's happening so that the nations would be glad in hearing the gospel. The same thing that Jesus was telling them on the Mount of Olives while he was present with them, sitting with them privately. He's telling them all these catastrophic events are happening is the same thing he's calling us to do. Where seemingly catastrophic events are happening, we feel disconnected, torn, hurt, scared, We're called to do the same thing and to be the same people, the same disciples. In closing today, I want to just put this in a frame for you. That those are our callings. That's what we're we're trying to do. But if you're not a master in any of these things, don't worry. You're not alone. There's not a single master in here. I'm totally weak in all these things, and I'm striving as I live life to grow more in them. You're not alone. 
But instead, I, I just love the imagery of Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. I love that imagery because he's sitting there. He could be doing so many other things, but he's present with his disciples. In the same way, I think Jesus is inviting us into his presence. We're not experts, but he is. He's an expert in these things. And in the presence of Jesus, there are no lies. There's only truth. And we can simply delight and be formed by the gospel. With Jesus, all our anxious thoughts can have an outlet. We can cast our cares on him because he cares for us. We can rest from our anxiety. And with Jesus, we can go with him as his messengers of mercy and grace to the world, even when we lack experience or don't have all the answers. May we be formed in the presence of God no matter what is happening in the world and live as the disciples who are continually growing in our trust of God. So as we enter into communion today, as we celebrate it, we are going to know that we are in God's presence through the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember that Christ came and that he would give his own life for us. The wafer represents Christ's body broken. The juice represents his blood shed. If you're not a Christian today, we, we ask you to not participate in this, but instead take this time and consider what it, would it be like if you put your trust in Christ. And if you are a Christian today, celebrate the trust that you have, grow in it, and remember that Christ is with you and that he is with all of us because of his work on the cross. May we remember that one day we're going to take this, this cup. I don't know if it's going to be this cup. I don't know what it's going to be like, but we're going to take this in his presence. And all of, the, all of the, the life that we've had that is forming our trust, all of the things that we've been experiencing in this world, the trust that we have now is going to be visible. And we're going to see him and it's going to be completely fulfilled. And that gives me great hope, even in our present circumstances. Let's pray. Father, you are holy and good and true. and We can trust you no matter the circumstances of the world, no matter the circumstances in our lives. Lord, I pray for the Oaks Community Church. I pray that we would be a beacon for the gospel, that we would live in delight in you, that we would not be anxious for anything, but that we, we would be a light for the gospel to Middletown and the, in our jobs and in our homes. I lift up these people and help us to delight in your presence today. In Christ's name we pray, amen.